Welcome to the Radio Book Club, which is a collaboration between KGNU and the Boulder Bookstore. I'm Maeve Conran, as always my co-host, Arsene Kashkashian of the Boulder Bookstore. Arsene, we are back in the bookstore once again with the live audience and another fantastic Colorado author. Who have we been reading for the month of December? We've been reading Erica T. Worth with her new book, White Horse. It is just another great uh, book by a Colorado author set in Colorado. So we really seem to be uh, finding some great gems right here in Colorado. Well, we are delighted to have Erica join us. Welcome, Erica. Thank you so much. I'm so honored to be here. I love this book. Like I was texting Arson, I loved this book. It's a page turner. It's so much imagery in it. There's incredible themes that we're going to explore in the interview. So we're delighted to have you here. But I want to talk about White Horse. It is the uh, titular, the bar, White Horse is a bar, the titular bar in the book. And that's where we first meet our protagonist, Carrie. And she's sitting in the bar, but things are a little bit off that evening. And she begins this journey where she encounters literal and metaphorical ghosts throughout the story. And, and faces her own past and her ancestors and her own identity. And there's so many things. But take us through the bar. Why did you want to have it primarily set in this bar? And is this based on a real bar in Denver? It is absolutely based on a real bar. Um, <laughs> in fact, um, the gal sitting on the in the third row there, her dad owned it for a time. Um, yeah, it's had a couple of owners. I, it's super cool to hear all the stories. And I actually met another guy who's his dad owned it. And uh, I think they were the only native owners of a very, very native bar. It didn't start that way. It opened, I think, in 1926. Um, it closed after 100 years, not quite 100 years, I think, in 19 during the pandemic. Um, and it's probably going to be mowed over, just as I, I the character fears in the book, right? But um, for a long, long time, probably 60s on, um, it was an Indian bar. And at one point, it was a huge bustling Indian bar where people would come to powwow, they'd come to Denver March and they'd go to the White Horse after and you know the um I have the bit in the book where I have that the main the bar, bartender won't own uh, ga- glass um, glasses for shot glasses and he only gives you paper cups is totally true because like they all just broke over the years and he just stopped having them right so he just has these little Dixie cups that you can get a shot out of um, and I, I yes I did have a, a Dixie cup, cup shot and the white horse um, and it just why did I put it in there because you know yes it's a bar but it's the most like Denver Indian institution for like the longest in terms of like different natives of all kinds and different folks of all kinds originally, right? Coming through that bar. And it's just, I just think about the stories I've heard about that bar over the years and they're kind of, they're honestly, they're astonishing, so. So the book is narrated by Carrie James, the main character. Tell us a little bit about her and, and you know, where does she come from? Um, Carrie is, she is like me in the sense that her dad is white um, and her mom is indigenous. Her mom is like my family. Some of her family is originally from northern Mexico and long story short, they were kind of kicked out by Porfirio Diaz, ended up in Texas. And then on the other side, um, they're black natives of Chickasaw descent. And, you know, if you're black and you're free and you're in the southeast at a time in which white folks and Indians own slaves, you do not want to be there. So they left at one point um, and sort of coalesced in Texas and, you know, in that area. 
and in Chicago and in Winnipeg, there are all these urban Indian cultures sort of forming. And so it is not talked about here the way it is in Canada. As messy as Métis identity is in Canada, at least urban Indian culture has a status, literally a legal status and a place. It is not talked about that way here. And Mexico is probably even messier where federal status is still being you know, sought for. So in any case, Carrie loves heavy metal. Carrie loves um, um, horror. Um, but she despises her mother, right, because she thinks her mother abandoned her when she was two days old. And so that's kind of where, where the novel starts. And that, those are the fundamental things about Carrie. The other difference between Carrie and I, um, beyond the fact that she's just a much stronger personality than me, is that you know I did my PhD here in Boulder, whereas Carrie is, is an extremely self-educated person. But she just has her GED, and she's a waitress and a bartender, and she likes those things. So, so you mentioned uh, the urban Indian. Thing. And that comes up a lot because Carrie is often gets in these conversations and she might say she's Apache and Chickasaw, but she almost always says urban Indian. So can you talk a little bit more about how the importance of that in her identity? I think for Carrie, like people talk about that she found her identity in the book. I don't think that's the case. What she did is she's a, she, you know, it's set in 2006. She's a Gen Xer. She's cynical and she's mean. And she's also a girl from Idaho Springs. And they're I love those girls. They were so mean to me, but <laughs> they were also funny and smart. And Carrie is semi-based off of a girl who used to tease the heck out of me. That I just I always liked her anyway. And um, she, you know, kind of understands that this thing that you don't have to be, you know, have a doctor to understand, which is that urban Indian culture exists. And in fact, years before they're there existed. I was constantly, you know, querying agents and saying, "Hey, urban Indian culture exists. It revolves around powwows and Native American church and Indian bars, and it's a mix of people like me and people whose families were relocated, you know, kind of by force or who chose to relocate, and it's its own distinct thing." And people were like, "Nope, nope, not interested." I want to talk about Idaho Springs because that's one of the places that's heavily featured in the book. It's where Carrie's from just outside of Denver and it's in a time of real incredible change but Carrie and her family are very much part of old Idaho Springs and there was a sentence that really struck me that exemplified that and she says my father's family has been here for generations they were miners now they work in Walmart and tell us about Idaho Springs for people who've maybe driven by on their way to the ski slopes, maybe stopped off to get pizza on the way back, but have no sense necessarily that Idaho Springs has been there for generations and there's a very deep culture. It, it um, you know, right now it's very shiny and pretty and the coffee shop I think used to be a thrift store that was kind of grubby, right? And you know, um, that's the Idaho Springs I grew up in and like right in the 90s is when it started to change and Colorado started to change, right? Evergreen, then Idaho Springs. Um, but I think what what's interesting about Idaho Springs is at the time anyway, now I think it's quite similar because I've looked it up. It's mainly working class white whites and a handful of black folks, a handful of Asians, and then a chunk of native people who are either Latinx natives, right, or like Diné or Lakota or Anishinaabe, um, or again, Mexican indigenous Indians um, or natives, you know, who, who all kind of filtered out into the cities and then just didn't really like that lifestyle and like ended up in places like Idaho Springs and especially Idaho Springs because it was a tough little cheap town at the time. And the white folks who were there, they, some of them are three, four generations 
and their yes their grandparents worked in the mines that was a brutal little life and now again it's now the walmart nevergreen is where they work and but a lot of my peers to be i want to be very fair um carrie is self-educated and i wanted to give that some dignity but a lot of my peers absolutely went to college and absolutely made lives for themselves so so you've got this um very realistic character and you've got a very realistic setting and um and not much of the book is very realistic as well but you you launch into kind of this horror. Why, why horror, I guess, or ghost story, or what did that allow you to explore that maybe if you had just told, you know, something that didn't have the magic and the kind of this, the visions and things that Carrie has, you know, what, what extra did that give you in this book? The easy answer is that I am a dork. And, <laughs> and I was getting back to my nerd roots. When I was a kid, I liked ghosts and demons and um, spaceships, and someone tried to give me a copy of To Kill a Mockingbird, and I remember being like, where are the dragons? Um, and I just was like, nope, you know? And when you go to PhD school, they iron it right out of you. You know, they, they say literary, instead of defining it as complex characterization, depth of theme, and attention to form and language that can be applied to any genre, they say it's realism or postmodernism. And anything else um, isn't cool. And so over time, I was like, it is cool, and I do like it. And I want to bring you know, the kind of gritty realism that I did with everything else that I did before, but then add some of the, the darker themes back, but in a supernatural, nerdy way. And yeah, it's true. Like, there's no way around it. Horror allows for probably a kind of cathartic, but also, yeah, and nerdy and fun and dark, you know, magic um, dark portal kind of way so it appeals to me as a nerd um but to talk about darker themes and i think those are themes that, that interest me but what's interesting is carrie gets real comfort out of, it's almost like a comfort blanket watching these horror movies particularly the shining where most people would be petrified she's like oh i feel better now i'm watching this show or this film and also heavy metal music gives her comfort too. another genre and culture that has probably not gotten its due recognition as well. So talk a little bit about that. Um, it's really funny because my boyfriend is the author of Winter Counts and it's an award-winning novel and his name is Jessica, David Heskowamley Wyden and he writes thrillers, okay? Like people are shot, stuff happens and yet when he comes in my room and I'm watching horror movies, like what are you watching? I'm like, a good show. And he's like, I can't watch that. It's a bad dreams, a bad dreams. And I'm like, good dreams. Because for me, what it does, it's probably cathartic. And I just enjoy the way in which kind of the nerdy stuff is explored, but probably in a more almost realistic way. But it is the only thing that distracts me enough from whatever the hell is going on in my head that sucks enough to sleep. And that's that's a lot of it. And then I just am attracted to those, to those themes. And I'm attracted to the supernatural. My sister has seen ghosts, my auntie, my grandmother, even my mother was haunted by my dad, but I'm the only one who hasn't, so that's probably why I write about it. As far as heavy metal goes, I was kind of an indie kid and a hip-hop kid, but heavy metal was the soundtrack to my childhood, right? If you're in the 80s and 90s and you're in a working-class small town, Black Sabbath, Megadeth, um, that's, that's, that's what happens. And so for a long time, I was like, no, it's stupid, and I'm cooler than that. And over time, I was like, no, I love Megadeth. And what I understood eventually about why people were so into it back home is because what I love about indie rock and hip hop is it's very DIY, right? There are virtuosos, there are geniuses in those genres, of course, but 
you have to like heavy metal. I know it turned into hair metal and then there was that, but you have to be a genius to play that stuff. And you know, Dave Mustaine, goofy personality, I suppose, but he writes like articles for music magazines. And so I understood why people back home where it's so rough, you have to be like special to get out. So I got it. And also just has that dark driving quality that's so cathartic, you know, it's so it matches their, their in, insides. So I wanted to ask you, we were talking a little bit about the realistic and supernatural. And so in this book, uh, Carrie gets a bracelet very early on, and that's the door that opens it, the book up to the supernatural elements, takes us away from, not away from, but out of the gritty realism. So were you looking for something that you know? Like, how do you, I'm always very interested, how do you move from this realism and go to supernatural, but keep your reader going with you, you know? In some ways, I, I did study the crime writers because they are progressive writers and literary is almost the opposite of them, where they just ruminate and ruminate and ruminate and don't care about story instruction. I do. So that was A number one. But as far as the supernatural elements, I was, as my brain was realizing, like, this is what I like to read and I need to write it. And I was trying to figure out how to do that. I was reading Mexican Gothic. I was reading anything by Grady Hendrix, really. Ring Shout. And I was also watching um, Lovecraft Country. And there were these objects of mystery. And I thought, this is so compelling. I love this. And my family has a very old bracelet um, that's copper. And it's not quite what's in the novel, but that's what I based it off of. Because I thought, you know, in some ways, it really is magical because it has carried, I don't even know how many generations. I actually don't know. I know because my auntie was a jeweler at one point, or a beadworker bead at one point, she would trade with jewelers. I know that it probably dates, because it's copper, to the 20s or 30s at least. But I don't, it could be earlier, and I, I don't know when it, when it came into my family. I thought, oh, that's kind of magical. Yeah. Well, the bracelet itself really acts as a portal, because once Carrie gets that, and actually when she has physical connection to it, when she touches it, it triggers these visions, and she's catapulted into really kind of this other world. And that sets her on this journey to find out what actually happened to her mom and, and resolve so much of what has been troubling her. So you mentioned there that many in your family, not you, I'm sorry, but many others in your family have visions. And, and she talks about that. And there's this wonderful character, Auntie Squeaky. Squeaker. Squeaker, Auntie Squeaker, um, who... It seems to be the, the character that really represents that side of the family who, I'm not sure if she's actually her auntie, but everybody calls her Auntie Squeaker. So um, talk a little bit about that, this idea of visions, what your experience has been and how this is sort of brought forward in families, often usually through the matrilineal line as well. Yeah, I mean, in all honesty, I am just like a Doctor Who nerd, and I just love, you know, there's just nowhere around, like, I want a portal or a magic mirror, a mirror, love myself a magic mirror, um, I would like a TARDIS, if that's at all possible, and you know, um, that would be super cool, um, but yes, I think, auntie, as to Auntie Squeaker, what I, she was semi, semi, semi based off of um, my mom's friend back home, just because my mom's, or not my mom's friend, my friend's mom is what I'm trying to say, um, who just was this kind of like, she believed in other worlds and she'd just smoke and do Indian tarot, which for me is just like, I don't know about anyone else, but it's um, doing tarot, but with like playing cards. And um, she was kind of like this quirky personality. So I thought, you know, who is kind of like a conglomerate of a little more volume turned up version, Auntie Squeaker? 
the main character is related to her, but everyone does call her Auntie Squeaker, right? Because she has that kind of role and she can like cure warts or she can help you with an abortion. And she kind of has a little bit of access to the other world. She can see ghosts. She can see Carrie's mom when, you know, when only Carrie can otherwise. And she has these kind of secrets that she's doling out to Carrie at the right time. So yeah, I just, I wanted to kind of make a curandera um, female medicine, you know, woman kind of character. So um, why don't we have you read a little bit of the book? You're just going to read the beginning. And I think, um, I think Debbie will show up. And does Debbie show up right away, right? And we haven't talked about Debbie yet. So maybe you could read this. And then we can talk a little bit about the character of Debbie because she plays such a key role. It's always hard to hold the microphone and deal with the book, but I can do it. That's my superpower, not seeing ghosts, apparently. Um, so unfair. There was something strange, mysterious even, about the white horse tonight. Normally, it was merely an Indian bar, my Indian bar, but there was a milky, dreamy quality to the red lights swinging over the pool tables, like the wind from the open doors was bringing them something new, something I'd pushed away for as long as I could remember. Debbie, do we have to talk about her again? I took another swig of my beer and slammed it back down, eyeing my cousin as I did. She would never let the subject go, no matter how much I rebuffed her. I sighed, taking in the dank, wetwood smell of the bar, the harsh laughter of the bikers in the booth behind me. The thing is, I found... I interrupted her with a brush on my hand. I hoped Nick, the bartender, would come by and ask if I needed a refill, but all I could see was the mirror in front of me, the words Miller High Life emblazoned in gold cursive on the front. Right next to it, a sign read, First Fight, Last Drink, Permanent 86. Besides us, Aunt, the bartender, and the bikers, the white horse was empty. It was always empty, but I loved it. I loved the long wooden bar, the cats wandering in and out. The mangy orange one was my favorite. She liked to sit on top of the bar and let me pet her while she closed her cloudy eyes and purred. Debbie shifted her weight on the stool, the plastic crackling as she did, the bar stirring around me like a bad dream. All I'm saying is that you don't know your mom's story. Yeah, okay, Debbie, that's great, I said. I signaled Nick when he came out of the bathroom. Two more, I said, hoping he'd remember. A couple of Dinah came through the doors, quiet the way they were, and made their way to the pool table in the back. One of them saw me when he came over to order a beer, and he gave me the friendly nod, his black hair glistening red in the faint barred light. I nodded back, and that strange feeling I'd had earlier flooded back into me. The thing is, Debbie said, you know how we check in on your dad? I hung my head. Yeah, so? I went over there the other day to do that and some cleaning because I know the nurse is great and everything, but I like to see how he is. And I just come home from work and I was dropping the kids off. Jesus, Debbie, if you're not going to let it go, spit it out. Okay, okay, she said, starting again. So mom had been pushing me to clear some of the boxes out of the attic and like, we're going to haul them out and throw them in the dumpster. But mom seemed to want to look through them. And mainly they were full of old toys and papers and rusting appliances. But then we found something. What? I whispered. And that dreamy quality snapped back. Something of your mom's. I was silent. My mother, the woman who had abandoned me when I was only two days old. The woman whom my father had been so devastated over he began to take long drives, a bottle of Jack between his legs. The woman who had made it so that I had to care for my dad like a baby instead of the other way around after he'd gotten into an accident that had left his body but taken his mind, Cecilia. That's Erica Worth reading from her new novel, White Horse. Your delivery of Debbie is exactly how I imagined Debbie would speak. She's she's 
such a strong character in the book and she kind of reminds me you were talking there about the girls that you grew up in Idaho Springs a lot of people were self-educated but many went to college and she did she got herself a business degree she's in a a marriage that's uh, not perfect by any stretch but she's such a, a wonderful character and is a real rock for Kerry so talk a little bit about why you wanted Debbie in there and what role she plays in the story. Yeah, I mean, when I thought about it intellectually, I thought, you know, it's funny, I actually have made the white guy the sidekick, right? So in a lot of narratives where the, a person of color is included, they're the sidekick <laughs> and they're like helping the Lone Ranger and stuff. And I'm like, I, I wouldn't, that's not going to be me. But really it was just that in Idaho Springs, that happens a lot. Like somebody, you know, their dad will be Mexican, but then their cousins on this side are white or they're you know, Indian on this side or, you know, XYZ's cousin is, you know, half Asian, like it's, and so it's very, very common in Idaho Springs. And so I wanted to show this kind of hilarious contrast between Carrie, this edgy kind of, you know, tough native chick and this like unbelievably sweet white lady who just, you know, loves her cousin, but, you know, puts up with too much shit from her. <laughs> yeah. I mean, one of the things I really enjoyed about the book was kind of that almost buddy aspect between the two of them. And also, thinking about the gender roles in this book, I thought Carrie was really a fascinating character in the sense that I think in horror, you you do end up with uh, strong women. Like the, It's usually the final girl who has to vanquish the villain. Um, this book is, is doesn't follow a, a completely typical horror trope, but... But Carrie is a very strong, independent woman. She's She owns her sexuality. You know, she doesn't want to be in a relationship, but she's happy to have, you know, a fling when that's what she wants. Um, she's not apologetic about it. And I thought that was really, it was really interesting. And that in combination with a friendship with Debbie kind of flips the gender roles a little bit from what feels like been going on for the last 300 years. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because there are very few indigenous horror writers. There's me, there's Shane Hawk, um, there's V Castro, Mexican indigenous lady whom I adore. And then of course, um, my friend, uh, Stephen Graham Jones, and he's kind of fascinated with the final girl. And so he kind of goes through those, those permutations for me. Exactly. Carrie is just very different because she's, you know, she's my creation and she's Idaho Springs creation. And I, I absolutely wanted to see her built exactly the way you describe. In terms of uh, Native American influence on horror or horror influence on, you know, uh, Native American writing. There's a really great scene. They're in the Stanley Hotel, which, of course, for any horror aficionado is, you know, a destination to go to. And and Carrie goes there because she feels she needs. Well, she has a vision, actually, but she she's so connected to this. She loves The Shining. She loves Stephen King. She knows so much about it. And she's on the tour. There's a horror tour that you get around the Stanley Hotel. And somebody says, oh, is there an Indian burial ground here? And she kind of rolls her eyes because that's such a trope. And it's almost campy now in in some horror things. So talk a little bit about that, because there's also a reference that Stephen King really likes Native American references in his work, too. So talk a little bit about that connection. I'm not sure there's any other space where Dave Mustaine and Stephen King would be connected. But (laughs) Carrie is a very smart person of working middle class background. So for her, like people always like are like the poverty, the poverty. Carrie grew up okay, you know. Um, perhaps if you're like really wealthy, she seems poor, but she's working middle. Um, so she is a very rugged person, but she's smart, right? So she likes her heavy metal and she likes her Stephen King. And she understands she's 
you know, they, they're not perfect role models and that they're not meant to be perfect role models, that they have parts that she admires and, and will replicate in a way, in her own way. I think with King, um, King's a reasonable personality. I think that you see these tropes throughout his early fiction. And I think that, I think it's possible he'd be like, yeah, I do it different now. Um, and so, and I think Carrie can acknowledge that while at the same time, you know, seeing, like you said, the way it's pervaded the culture. The funniest thing about the Stanley Hotel is that I actually went there for research. I've gone there as a kid many times, but then I went there for research and I brought my niece, Maeve, um, and she was 14 at the time. She's like my miniature research assistant. And we were in the room that's in the book and supposedly like an old white guy stands in the corners and glares at you and maybe scratches you. So we brought him a, a spirit plate and every time we were like, thank you for letting us be in your room, um, the light would 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 flicker and I'm like not particularly superstitious but by the time we went to bed like when we turned off the light I was like always waking up and looking in the corners and then at one point I'm like babe could you turn on the light because I just couldn't even I did I have my 14 year old niece do it <laughs> and what's interesting at the Stanley I've gotten to say there too actually I was at a horror movie festival that was on at the Stanley it was awesome did the tour and everything but the shining is on a loop constantly on one of the channels in the TV, you know, if you turn on the TV, it's just constantly playing The Shining. Yeah, it's it's a they embrace that connection. I mean, they're owning it. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt about it. This <laughs> Stanley's such a destination. So, I was interested. So, we talk a lot about Denver. You've got so many places. You got the Hornet Bar. You got Union Station. It's just one after the other. Boulder gets a, a few. At first, I thought Boulder was getting mentioned because of Lucille's, but it's probably it's a, she works at the Lucille's in Denver. But there is one mention of Boulder, and it's it's kind of as she's driving past Boulder to go to the um, the hotel to go to Estes Park, and she's like, "Oh, Boulder, you know where I used to sell the college kids drugs for a big markup," and so I guess you know um, I don't know what so. Coming from Denver, coming, you know, somebody like Carrie, you know, what what does Boulder look like in that world, I guess, is what I would be asking you. I can tell you what it looked like to me, which is the same, which is I, it might, it, in many ways, it might have been, it might as well have been a million miles away. My friend Misty and I in the 90s came here and we were like, okay, wow, Boulder, wow. You know, because it was so different from Idaho Springs and we were trying to like experience it. And sure enough, yes, someone tried to sell us drugs. And I'm like, no, but back home, everyone sells drugs. If we wanted drugs, we would not come here for you to sell it to us expensively. Um, but I, you know, <laughs> I did do um, my PhD here. And so it, it really was kind of a, a crazy experience because even though I came from a semi-middle-class background that my parents really worked to build for me, it, it wasn't like this. This was a, a, a world away. It really, really was. And I, I remember being very lonely and intimidated. <laughs> There's so much more we want to talk about. We also want to invite questions from the audience, which we will do in the podcast edition of the Radio Book Club. But right now we have to say goodbye to the radio audience and say uh, thank you so much, Erica. It's just been a delight. Thank you. Thank you. What wonderful questions. Thanks, both of you. As we always do at the end of each Radio Book Club radio show, we announce what we're reading. We're into the new year, Arson. What are we reading to kick off 2023, the month of January? We're going to read another Colorado author, Ozma Zanet Khan, Blackwater Falls, and it features a Muslim woman as a detective from Denver. So we'll get another angle on Denver and Colorado in that book. 
we're looking forward to that and people can catch that on the fourth thursday at 9 a.m in january fourth thursday in january and uh, don't forget though subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode for the Radio Book Club, a collaboration between KGNU and the Boulder Bookstore, I'm Maeve Conran, Arson Kashkashian, my co-host. Thanks so much. Thank you, Maeve.